Uh, we thank God for this opportunity to worship him once again in spirit and in truth. Uh, Pastor George has been doing a series called Evergreen, uh, the gift of love in the garden of God. And God wants to refresh us. He wants to restore us. He wants to uh, create uh, an in internal environment where we can grow and glow for Christ. And so we're continuing that, uh, that series today by talking about two great trees, two great trees. I would like to call your attention to Genesis chapter 2. You don't have to stand. All you have to do is open up your Bible and I'll read and all, all you have to do is listen. Amen? Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. It's also in your pew Bibles on page 2. And there you will find these words. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first one, first, is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Delium and orange stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third is Tigris. It flows east of Syria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till, till it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Two great trees. If I were used as a subtitle for this passage, I would uh, label it our family tree. Our family tree. Dr. Howard Thurman, great African-American theologian, mystic theologian, said that there are three things that every human being needs to have. A sense of God, a sense of history, and a sense of self. 
It is in that sense of God that it is a sense of God's story that keeps our faith active and alive. So we must constantly rehearse the story of God. A sense of history. It is a sense of history that keeps our ancestors alive and in our presence. So we must remember and reflect upon our history as it relates to our ancestors and a sense of self. It is a sense of our relational self that keeps us connected and humble, that we were designed to be in relationship with one another, that we would not isolate ourselves, but that we would understand that the very fact that we are human means that we should be in relationship. And when we come to the realization that our story and God's story and the story of humanity are intertwined, it has profound implications on how we live our lives. Because I think brothers and sisters, that we all have this innate desire within us to know where it all started. Uh, we all have this desire to, to raise the question, where do we fit in into this grand narrative of life? And I believe as we look at this creation narrative, uh, that the backdrop of this text that the children of Israel who had been in slavery for 400 years, and here they are led out of Egypt into the wilderness in dry desert ground, and here they are wondering, God, what are we doing here? What, what is the plan, Lord? And, and I believe that God began to give them a sense of who he was, that they began to understand as Moses began to write down their history and how it all started, that they got a sense of history and that they were important, and also that God gave them a sense of self right in the middle of a desert, that he gave them a sense of self. And so I think all of us in here today have that innate desire to wonder, Lord, why am I here? Where, where did it all start? Uh, uh, where do I fit in into the grand narrative of life? So as we talk about these two great trees, I, and I reflect on my, my own story, I can remember uh, when I, and when, uh, whenever I go home, I always stop by two places. And one place is on 2449 Golden Camp Road in Augusta, Georgia. And on the corner of 2449 Golden Camp Road, that's where my grandmother lived, and that's where I spent most of my childhood life. And all around uh, that house, uh, trees were planted by my grandfather. But there's one particular tree uh, that he planted when I was eight years old, and me and my cousin Ronnie took a picture under that tree, and I still reflect on that tree every time I go home. I stop by the house and I look at that tree and now that tree is 42 years old. And I look at the branches on that tree, how it has spread across the street. 
And that tree uh, is a great tree for me. It, it has a lot of meaning for me because it was at that tree uh, and in that house where I began to grow as a young man. It was at, in that house and around that tree where my grandmother taught me how to pray. It was uh, around that tree and in that house where I learned how uh, the difference between right and wrong. It was around that house and under that tree that we fellowship with one another. That's when I was eight years old, but there was another great tree on, uh, on 2412 Madrid Drive. And my grandfather planted that tree as well, and that was a great tree for me because it was at that address and around that tree and at that house that I received my calling to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so every time I go home, uh, those two trees serve as a landmark for me. And all of us have landmarks, all of us have places that we go back to that ignites our memory and helps us to understand uh, or to make meaning out of life and, and from whence we have come. And so I, I think it's important today that we, we always have a sense of God and a sense of history and a sense of self. Such is the case here in this passage of Scripture, the children of Israel are trying to figure out and make sense out of life and where it all started, and Moses begins to tell the story under the superintendent hand of God and, and write down the, the creation narrative. And as we look at this narrative, the first thing I want us to see here is that where there is chaos, God brings order to our lives. And where there is chaos, God brings order. Look at what it says here in verse 4 through 6. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the earth. We see here that as Moses writes this story, he shows, as one writer puts it, the divine intentionality of God. Here, God creates a universe and he creates a garden. And in chapter one, we see a general analysis of creation. But here in chapter two, God begins to get specific on what he did in creation. So he slices out of day, a day out of chapter one and looks at that particular day and he begins to tell the story and and in this chaotic moment, God wants to bring order. He wants to bring order. Because behind every thing, there's a thought. And behind every thought, there's a thinker. And in this case, the, the divine thinker, God has created a universe. He has created 
a people. He has created a man and a woman. And in this particular passage of Scripture, God shows his divine intentionality. And we find here that where there's chaos in the universe, God creates order. He brings order. And that is what he wants to do in each and every one of our lives. He wants to bring order. He wants to bring order. He wants to bring order in your life. He wants to bring order in our family. He wants to bring order in our world. He wants to bring order in the nation. He wants to bring order in each and every one of us. The same thing that God did in creation, he wants to do in our individual lives. When we look at creation and we look at what God has done, but then we see God creating man, which one writer put it, he's the Man is the crowning glory of God's creation. That when God created man, uh, man was completely different than the animals. Uh, that man was had a spark of divinity within him. And so here we find here that every human being is an image bearer. Of God. Look at what he says in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That he formed, that God formed man, that the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. The term form indicates that that the act of creation was by careful design and that the same Hebrew word that is used later in Genesis to in create or indi indicate the intention of God and the word that he used for Adam, which is human, and Adama, which is ground from the dust of the ground. And I like the way John Calvin puts it. John Calvin says the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be ex excessively stupid who does not hear, learn humility. Now, I didn't say that. John Calvin said that. <laughs> so the truth is that though we are wonderfully conceived and wonderfully made, and formed by God, yet because of sin, we will return to the dust. In other words, no matter how beautiful we are, no matter how handsome we are, no matter how intelligent we are, uh, no matter uh, how many things we have accomplished in life, we still, we will still return to the dust. Calvin says that that in itself should create a profound sense of humility within us. It should keep us humble. And it also tells us, brothers and sisters, and one of the things that we see in this text is that no indication of race is mentioned here. Uh, that Adam is not identified whether he is a black man or white man, but he did come from the dust, so it, it, and the dust has to be a certain color. Amen, somebody. 
indication, narrative story, no indication of, of what color Adam was. It just says that he came, he came from the dust and that God breathed into him the breath of life, which tells us that every man, woman, boy or girl has a spark of divinity within them. They are image bearers, that we are all image bearers of God. No matter whether we're brown, black, yellow, or white, we're all image bearers of God. I like the way one writer put it. He said, we were all humans until race disconnected us. Religion separated us. Politics divided us. And wealth classified us. Let me say that again. Somebody may have missed that. <laughs> we were all humans until race disconnected us. Religion separated us. Politics divided us. And wealth classified us. And I believe, I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, that when we go back to this Genesis narrative, when we go back to the creation narrative, uh, the starting point is that we were human first. That God created us all to be human beings. One writer put it this way. He says, let humanity be our race and love be our religion. Let humanity be our race. Let that be the priority. Let humanity be our race and let love be our religion. And if we live with that conviction, if we live with that disposition, then the world would be a whole lot better place to live in if humanity was our race. And so this, this narrative, particularly in verse 7, there is an intimacy between God and Adam that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living being that there is an intimacy and a relationship between Adam and God that God did not have with that with the animals and so Adam became the crowning glory of God's creation he was the, the image bearer of God. God created Adam and created humanity to represent him, to be image bearers of his grace, image bearers of his love, image bearers of his peace, that God created all of us to bear his divine image. So we see this in in verse 7, that there's an intimacy between Adam and, and God. And so there should also be an intimacy between us and God. There should also be a relationship that implies that Adam and God had a relationship. Now, as the children of Israel reach back into and reach this narrative and they begin to make sense out of life, and they begin to detach themselves from an Egyptian mindset and begin to understand that they are image bearers of God. What, what, does, this, what does this tell us? What, 
does this tell us in the 21st century? What does this mean for us? Because as we begin to see the progression of this passage in verse, verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see these two great trees. There are many trees in the Garden of Eden, but there are only two trees that are mentioned and have a name attached to them. And one is the tree of life, and the other one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the story. Adam and Eve, uh, they were told, and in this text, they were told by God that you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, and in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, why is it that the very thing that God tells us not to do, we desire to do it? The very thing that our parents tell us not to do, we do it. I can remember growing up as a kid and my mother in her early years used to smoke cigarettes and she just looked so calm when she smoked cigarettes. And being the inquisitive young man that I was at the, at the age of six, uh, when she left the, the cigarettes on the kitchen table, I uh, pulled one of those cigarettes out and I imitated her. I turned the stove on and I lit, I, I, I put the, uh, the cigarette up to the stove and, and lit the cigarette. And it's, by the time I got it to my mouth, my, grandma, my mother came around the corner and snatched it out of my hand. And uh, for lack of a better phrase, she disciplined me. And to that day, I, I have never put a cigarette <laughs> in my hand again. But what is it about when God tells us not to do something, we desire to do it. It makes us want to do it even more. God tells Adam and Eve not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he tells them that you can partake of every tree, including the tree of life. And I wonder, as I think of what our father Adam did, I wonder, as one writer put it, the reason why sin remains to be so attractive is because its consequences remain hidden. That if Adam had seen the consequences of his sin, he might have made a better choice. That many of us, as we sit here today, if we had seen the consequences of some of the sins that we have committed and the road of digression that it led us down, that we may have made a better choice. But in a metaphorical sense, when we look at this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's clear that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil became our family tree. When we look 
from Genesis all the way to Revelation that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil had its effects on each and every generation after Adam. When we read in Genesis chapter 5 and it tells us so-and-so was born and he died. So-and-so was born and he died. And so-and-so was born and he begat sons and daughters, but he died. Uh, Methuselah thought he could get away from it, but it says even after 969 years, he died. And up until Jesus Christ, death was the undefeated champion of the world. And death thought it had Jesus down. Jesus was the only one that was able to conquer death. And Paul alludes to this as we, as we think about this passage. Paul alludes to this in Romans that, that in the, the first Adam, death and sin entered into the world. But through the second Adam, grace and truth came into the world. And there are many people who are living in the shadows of the first Adam and we're living under that family tree, but there is another tree, the tree of life. There's another tree, the tree on the cross, the tree that is on Golgotha's hill that Jesus died on, and that tree gives us life. This text, brothers and sisters, helps us understand that uh, we may have been grafted into Adam's family tree, but we have an opportunity to switch trees. Metaphorically, we all have an opportunity to switch trees under the second Adam, Jesus Christ. We all have an opportunity to, to switch trees and live in the light of the second Adam and live and have a right to the tree of life under that second tree through Jesus Christ. And when we live under that second tree, when we live uh, under that family tree, when we were grafted into that family tree that, that Jesus created on the cross uh, and gave us a right to the tree of life, when we, when we live with that family tree, with that disposition, truly humanity can be our race and love can be our religion. Because the same thing that God was doing in the first Adam and creation started with him. Within the second Adam, when God pulled Jesus out of the grave, he was creating a new creation. And Jesus became the firstborn of this new creation. And we are the first fruits of that creation, those of us who accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I will submit to you today that we should let humanity be our race and love our religion. Because if humanity is our race, and love is our religion, then there will be no need for a wall on the Mexican border. 
Because humanity is our race. If humanity was really our race, if we live with that conviction as a people and as a nation, then there would be no need for Black Lives Matter or white privilege because humanity is our race. Humanity is our race, that we are human first, black second, human first, white second, human first, Asian second, that we are human first, that God created us in his divine image. Amen? Love is a language that the deaf can hear, that everyone can understand. That if love is our religion, the homelessness crisis in Seattle would not even exist if love was our religion and humanity was our race. Someone mentioned to me today that there are 17,000 children that die every day. 17,000 children as a result of poverty and not having anything to eat, not having any clothes to wear. If humanity was our race and love was our religion, that wouldn't be a hungry child in the world. If humanity was our race and love was our religion, the world would be a whole lot better place to live in. And I do believe that that is how Jesus lived his life. When he walked the dusty roads of Jerusalem, Jesus lived with the conviction that, yes, humanity is our race and love is our religion. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being created in your image. We thank you, dear God, that Indeed, Jesus lived in such a way that humanity is our race and love is our religion. And may we walk in the footsteps of our Savior and live with that conviction in our church, in our neighborhood, in our community, and in our world. The world that we live in would be a better place to live in if we live with that conviction. And may it be so, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.